Every one of those activities has been embraced by every human that's ever lived. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. And it would behoove us to... From our studios in Malibu, California. Pay really close attention to those if we want to manifest that strong, mean, fit, happy, healthy body. Welcome to another episode of the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson. I'm host Brad Kearns here in the Malibu studios. And Mark, we've had a good run of podcasts in recent times, and I thought that today we would just go back to the beginning and talk about Primal Blueprint, the basic 10 laws of the Primal Blueprint for people that might not be familiar with or just want to get a a recap of how this all started. Yeah, I think if you're a listener and you've uh, been involved with the Primal Blueprint for a while and you understand the the basics behind it, this might be uh, going maybe back too far. But for those who are not familiar with the Primal Blueprint, this is a, a, a way of living that uh, is designed to optimize how your genes express themselves, how you rebuild, renew, regenerate, and recreate yourself on a daily basis based on these, what, what I like to call hidden genetic switches, these things that we've discovered through the combination of um, paleobiology and evolution and modern genetic science. When we first uh, decided to describe the primal blueprint lifestyle, and we decided to come up with a, a, a blueprint, a guideline, a set of, of uh, suggestions, if you will, for how to optimize health. We looked at uh, all of the different things that uh, every human shared throughout the course of evolution. And with that, we came up with these 10 immutable primal blueprint laws. And, um, you know, they are, and I'll reel them off right now, eat lots of plants and animals, avoid poisonous things, move frequently at a slow pace, lift heavy things, sprint once in a while, get adequate sleep, play, get adequate sunlight, avoid stupid mistakes, and use your brain. And, you know, there it's a very general list, a very generic category, but basically every one of those those activities has been embraced by every human that's ever lived. And it would behoove us to pay really close attention to those if we want to, you know, manifest that strong, lean, fit, happy, healthy body. So those are general categories, but that's an exhaustive list of everything that humans needed to do to survive evolution. Correct. And, and you know, it, and it breaks down into different areas of life. And so it's not just about the diet and it's not just about the exercise. And if we really, you know, let's, let's just go through these one at a time and, and sort of talk about what they mean. Eat lots of plants and animals. Well, you know, this is how we get energy. Uh, we, we eat food. We convert that food into energy uh, or into lean body mass and, uh, or, in some cases, into uh, body fat. Uh, and as a result of consuming those, those foods, we turn on different switches, different genetic switches that cause different distributions of that, of that energy. But the bottom line is when we talk about eating lots of plants and animals, the basis of the human food pyramid has always been, has always had its, at its foundation, plants, vegetables, you know, fruits and things like that, and animal sources of protein, meat, fish, fowl. Uh, eggs, nuts to a certain extent. So while it's a very simple statement to say eat lots of plants and animals, it's also a complex statement because for the millennia, we have derived most of our energy from animal sources of food. And with today's 
sort of emphasis on eating, you know, a plant-based diet, I, which, with which I totally agree. Um, we many, many areas of investigation into human nutrition seem to overlook this concept that, that animals offer a tremendous source of protein, of very healthy fats, and uh, – that it's that's it's it's critical that we understand that when we're putting together a complex a complete diet. So one other thing is when you, when you see what a broad range that is of eating plants and animals, and we're so conditioned to subscribing to these diets that are very narrow in their regimens and their directives. How does the Primal Blueprint differ from that? Well, it you know it sort of it sort of depends on Primal Blueprint Law Number Two, which is avoid poisonous things. Uh, and the, what's meant by that is to stay away from those foods that have been to which we have not adapted. Uh, processed carbohydrates would be the best, a good example, or sugars, uh, for the most part, and uh, industrial seed oils, those uh, f- uh, franken fats. And so, in in staying away from a lot of the processed foods that have arisen as a result of our uh, our dependence on on industrial processing of foods. We're, we're left with not just a list of foods to avoid, avoid poisonous things, but, but there remains a pretty copious cornucopia of, of good foods that are, that are delicious. Again, the meat, fish, fowl, eggs, nuts, seeds, vegetables, a little bit of fruit. The, these are all uh, foods to which we have adapted, to which our taste buds are accustomed and attuned, to which if you are able to uh, – Focus your diet and the intake of those, you tend to be able to mitigate hunger and, and to control the cravings that so many people develop as a result of their dependency on, on processed food. So before we head into the, the next laws which have to do with exercise, just to recap, it seems like the primal blueprint uh, stands apart from conventional wisdom on, on two main things. One is that it's okay to eat animal foods, including high-fat animal foods. And number two, that grains are not necessary part of a diet, even the vaunted whole grains. Well, if you were to you know, pull one principle out of both paleo and, and primal uh, ways of eating, it would be that grains are sort of antithetical to health. There's nothing really magical about grains. In fact, there are n- very few good things I could say about grains in general except that they are a cheap source of calories that converts to glucose pretty quickly in the bloodstream. And if our intention is to um, become good at burning fat and to, to minimize the amount of glucose that we depend on and have to burn over a lifetime, one of the easiest ways to achieve that is to minimize or eliminate the intake of grains. So the main objection is that it just contributes to the excess carb intake that, that frames the modern diet. And then secondarily, there's some um, anti-nutrients that uh, particular people will be very sensitive to or mildly sensitive to. Sure, uh, exactly. Beyond, beyond the, the carbohydrate load that grains and processed grains and, and, and sugars present to the body, there is the fact that a lot of grain sources of foods now contain uh, lectins and phytates and, uh, you know, most people are familiar with gluten and it's uh, huge issues with a large a part of the population. So I think most people would be well advised to avoid grains uh, just about in all forms. And I know that's a very harsh statement uh, to make, particularly when we've, <laughs> we've been adhering to a government-recommended food pyramid that suggests 6 to 11 servings of grains a day. But as more and more research comes down the, the road, 
we start to see that not only is it that celiacs are gluten intolerant or that people with Crohn's or irritable bowel syndrome or whatever have overt manifestations of, of pain when they eat grains. There are a lot of people, and I was one of them, who uh, exhibit for long periods of time subclinical effects of, of grain intake that would be uh, manifest themselves in uh, decreased immune function, uh, arthritis, for instance, GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, or heartburn brought on by, by grain. So there are a lot of other areas uh, that people might assume are natural or normal or you know, are, are caused by something other than that that would, that would probably be well taken care of by just eliminating grains entirely. And if if you try eliminating grains for 30 days and it doesn't work, or excuse me, and, it, and you, you, you feel no difference, then you know, I'm not going to suggest that you never eat grains again for the rest of your life. But what we've found is that most people who give up grains for any length of time start to realize that they feel better, they have more energy, they're thinking clear, more clearly, uh, and that's, you know, that's a pretty profound effect for a lot of people. Uh, well, also, as a little bit of an aside, most of the people... Uh, that we that we encounter are interested in losing excess body fat and finding that restricting calories uh, while they're still eating a higher percentage of carbohydrates simply doesn't work. So it's sort of a related point to why should you give up grains? Right. I mean, it, one of the principles of the Primal Blueprint eating strategy is to um, is to mitigate the production of insulin. Insulin is a fat storage hormone. Um, and yes, there are a lot of other hormones that are at work in the body's metabolism, leptin, ghrelin, glucagon, uh, testosterone, uh, thyroid hormone, and so on. The reality is that if you can do what it, what's necessary to keep your insulin levels under control, you pretty much are able to get all of the other hormone players under control. So we look at um, the, the notion of reducing carbohydrate intake in general. It's, it, it, this is, after all, a fairly low-carb diet. Uh, when we do what, what's necessary to get un- insulin under control, we tend to trend toward an ideal body composition. That is, the body tends to burn more of its stored body fat and store less of it. So before we hit the next three laws, the exercise laws, one thing you said at the outset about genetic switches and gene reprogramming, and I think it's important to educate in a different sense than, than our, our common notion of genes is fixed heritable traits. And you're saying these things about genetic switches turning on and off. Yeah, well, all genes operate in an environment that requires some signaling. So we, we refer to this as the epigenetics, the, the level of control above the genes that turns those genes on or off. And genes are just instructions for making proteins, and they make the proteins that cause the body to work, uh, that build the body and then and then cause it to uh, have the capacity to generate energy and move about and, and, and react and respond to certain stimuli. So it all comes back to this genetic recipe that we all have and our recognition just in the last 10 or 20 years that, that much of, of who we are depends on which of those genes that exist in our own recipe have been turned on or off. For example, there are certain foods that we can eat that turn on genes that cause inflammation. And if they cause systemic inflammation throughout the body, they can predispose us to heart disease, uh, or to cancer. Uh, there are certain genes that we can turn on that will increase the amount of fat that we burn and, and other genes that might increase the amount of fat that we deposit on our bodies. And these all happen as a result of inputs that we create through our behaviors. Typically, food is, is probably the, the most obvious uh, source of some of these genetic switching. So 
whether you store or burn fat, whether you build or destroy muscle tissue, um, how much energy you have over the course of a day can be very much dependent on not, not what you inherited from your parents, not the familial predispositions that you might have inherited, but on the actual human genes that, that through which all of the, the, the um, biochemistry of the body operates, whether or not they're turned on by these inputs that are derived from choices that you make in your diet, in your exercise style, in sun exposure, and so on. Let's take a look at law number three, move frequently at a slow pace. Yeah, I mean, every human throughout the two million years of human evolution uh, has moved around a lot until very, very recently, uh, before the advent of, of automobiles and, and you know planes and trains and even bicycles. Humans ambulated. We walked. We're bipedal. We're, we're upright bipedal locomotors and in fact, for the longest time, there were no chairs, there were no sofas, there were no benches to sit on. So it was either walking or squatting, you know, or, or reclining. So there's a huge, long human history of low-level aerobic activity. And, uh, you know, in the Primal Blueprint, I go in great detail into the concept of uh, the antithesis of that, which is chronic cardio, which uh, was embraced in the 60s this concept that the more you ran or the more aerobic activity you did at a high heart rate, the better off you were. And we've discovered now that that's not necessarily an accurate statement, that there's a point uh, beyond which you can do too much aerobic activity and, and maybe cause um, uh, negative health in, in, in impacts or consequences. So the, the ideal strategy, from my estimation, is to find ways to walk a lot uh, or bike easily, or swim easily, or run occasionally, but not run at, at a heart rate of, say, you know, in excess of 75 or 80% of your max heart rate. By moving around a lot, we, we are able to not only, it's really not about burning calories. We don't burn that many calories uh, through, through walking. And we, I wouldn't want to depend on low-level aerobic activity as the main reason that I'm, uh, that I'm losing weight. Um, most weight loss happens as a result of the, of the food you eat, and very little depends on the amount of exercise you do. But more importantly, it's just about moving around in different planes of, of, of ac- action and activity so that you have this body with, with these amazing sets of muscles that are able to uh, move you through, through space. And it just becomes very important to be able to, to, to have the opportunity to do that on a regular basis. You know, I'm, you and I are sitting here right now in chairs and, and our hip flexors are tightening up because we're in chairs. I have a stand-up desk at, at my office at home. Um, I have a treadmill at my desk at work. Um, all my employees have treadmills at their desk. We try to find ways to, uh, to move around a lot at this low level of aerobic activity because as the, uh, the latest mantra to come out of uh, the investigation in, into uh, human movement is sitting is death. And you're going to see more and more of that as time goes by. So just find ways to move around. And again, don't worry about how many calories you're burning or not. It's not about the calories. It's about the movement. So the emphasis is on a comfortable or slow pace. And you mentioned not exceeding 75 or 80% of maximum heart rate. And if you're not familiar with heart rate, that's very, very easy pace. So what happens when you drift above and go from slow up to medium or even difficult like many exercisers? Well, uh, you know, I, I go very intensely for short periods of time all the time. This is not a proscription or a prohibition on ever going, you know, hard at a, at a, at a fast aerobic pace. 
it really just sort of addresses the idea that there are there are a number of people who think if a little is good, then more is better, and who are training hard every single day. Uh, the examples I would use are when I was a marathoner. I ran hard every day. When I was a triathlete, I worked out, either swim, rode my bike, or ran hard just about every day. And when I say hard, I mean, it might not have been as intense as I'm out of breath in five minutes, but it might have, and it might have been spread out over two or three hours. But still, to do that every single day and not give the body time to recover was putting a, a set of stresses on the body that it's just not able to recover from easily. And, you know, so what we're talking about here is if you want to optimize your health and probably optimize your, your fitness, then low-level aerobic activity in concert with the next two laws coming up uh, would be the best approach. So law number four is simply lift heavy things. When we are trying to manifest a strong, lean, fit, happy, healthy, productive body, we, again, want to look back to our history and, and kind of discern what our ancestors did for millions of years to achieve that robust uh, physical manifestation that they had. And, and one of the activities that they exhibited was lifting heavy things, whether it was dragging a baby around uh, because you were you know, migrating across the, the plains or whether it was lugging a carcass back to camp or building a camp or climbing a tree. These are all uh, brief bursts of movement. We would call it resistance training. Uh, and we can emulate that by going into the gym now or even outside in the backyard by doing push-ups, pull-ups, dips, squats, lunges, and so forth, or in the gym by, by doing uh, bench presses and leg presses and uh, overhead presses and a number of other typical gym exercises that we do. But what happens as a result of these exercises is signals are sent to the genes. And in this case, the, the genes and the muscles in particular are uh, prompted to grow stronger. The idea being that if, um, if this individual is going to want to choose to lift this sack of 50 pounds again in the future, I, the body, better become stronger. I better adapt. I better get fit. And this is what it, – it's, it's really this sort of minor stress, a short burst of, of lifting heavy things that causes muscle to grow. Now, do you need to do it every day? No. In fact, the Primal Blueprint exercise pyramid would have would suggest two intense lifting sessions per week is probably adequate. Maybe you can do three, maybe four, but two is probably a good kind of minimum number to uh, start to manifest some of the changes in not just your muscle strength, but the um, in bone density, which comes as a result of lifting heavy things, uh, energy production, which happens as a result of lifting heavy things. There, is a, there are some genetic adaptations within the mitochondria that will allow you to process energy more efficiently as a result of lifting heavy things. So there are all manner of benefits to, to doing resistance exercise. So we see in the gyms, a lot of people are mostly focused on the cardio. They go and they do their elliptical every day and they don't touch the weights because they're intimidated or for whatever reason, not, not skilled at it. But you're saying it's pretty simple. And also the duration of the workout doesn't have to be that long. Right. It doesn't take that much to, to prompt those genetic suggestions in the body to build a stronger muscle. Uh, one of the assumptions people have, particularly the ones that, that you'll see on the treadmill four or five days a week, 
uh, slogging through, you know, these painful miles that they're doing in a desperate effort to maybe lose weight or maintain their weight. Uh, but what happens as a result of that choice is that uh, muscle is not necessarily built. In fact, in many cases, it's, it, there's, there's enough muscle that is cannibalized to be able to, to supply those muscles with the, the, the leg muscles with carbohydrate or, or in this case, uh, glucose to continue to do that activity. And then the person goes home and they've maybe burned off 600 calories in the workout, but then their appetite says, wait a minute, I've, I need to replenish at least the 600 calories I burned today if I'm going to do this again. And it becomes this this uh, sort of cyclical, you know, the term is treadmill of, of uh, you know, running hard every day and then eating every night to compensate for it and then never losing that 20 or 25 pounds uh, while it's jiggling off your, uh, your, your belly or your butt while you're on the treadmill. The, the much easier way to do this is to get in the gym and start doing some resistance training. The appetite doesn't get as uh, stimulated through doing that. Uh, the muscles get stronger and denser, uh, m- much more effective. And then this brings us to, to, to law number five, sprint once in a while. So as long as you are able to go all out for very brief periods of time, anywhere from 10 to 30 seconds in, in bursts of speed, which is another human activity. If you look back to our ancestral patterns, one of the things that our ancestors had to do was run for their lives away from uh, something that was dangerous. Uh, maybe once in a while, maybe once every couple of days. But th- that also manifested itself in a pulse of growth hormone and a pulse of testosterone uh, in some cortisol secretion, some, some adrenaline, and all of these different brief pulses of, of uh, acute response to whatever was, was um, threatening the life. Over time, that would manifest itself, again, in greater speed, in greater utility of, of uh, nutrients. Uh, and all of that is available to us today. We just don't have something chasing us, trying to kill us necessarily on, a, on, a, on any given day. And so we have to create these opportunities. So one of the things I suggest people do is find one day a week where you can sprint. And it doesn't have to be you know, outside on the roads or in the track. It could be in, in the gym on a treadmill. It could be on the bike. You can do bike sprints. You can do sprints on an elliptical trainer. You can do them on a rowing machine. But the idea is to get your heart rate up to a max heart rate for very brief periods of time. So typically we see people doing a warm-up of 5 or 10 minutes and then ramping up to a all-out effort for 10 to 20 or maybe 30 seconds, rest a minute or two, ramp it up again, do it again, and do this six or eight times during that one workout, uh, one time a week. And if you become good at this, you can do it twice a week. And that, so, so then we have this three-pronged attack to fitness. We have the moving around a lot at a low level of of pace, uh, where your heart rate doesn't climb that high, uh, lifting heavy things, which includes, you know, squats and uh, lunges and leg presses. So your legs, th- those legs that would be running on the treadmill, are still getting a workout. They're just the muscles are are be- getting a much more efficient, effective workout. And then sprinting once in a while, and you put all those three together, and you come up with the consummate sort of well-trained athlete who does have some endurance capacity for having done low-level aerobic activity, does have some speed and some efficiency from having done the sprints, and does have some overall strength from having done the, the lifting heavy things. So the first five laws to recap, which are pertaining to diet and exercise, number one, eat lots of plants and animals, number two, avoid poisonous things, 
Number three, move frequently at a slow pace. Number four, lift heavy things. And number five, sprint once in a while. And then we have five more laws that deal more with lifestyle factors to support those diet and exercise. Right. So law number six is get adequate sleep. And, and I find as I, as I go through life and I talk to people, this is one of the most underappreciated and overlooked laws in human health. Um, I cannot stress enough how important it is to get adequate sleep. We are so uh, enticed by the entertainment that is available after 10 or 11 o'clock at night, uh, the fact that we can keep the lights on all night long or that we can go party with friends and hang out and listen to music and do all these things. It, it's really quite, it's quite a challenge to be able to say no to this and to wind down at the end of the day, uh, decrease your exposure to these artificial lights, the, the, the blue lights that are coming off of the TV screen or the computer screen or from the overhead lights in whatever venue you're at, and to just kind of wind down and decrease the, you know, the amount of, of noise that's around you and, and put yourself in a comfortable place and then fall asleep normally without uh, taking any kind of sleeping drugs or any aids like that. To get eight or nine or in some cases nine and a half hours of sleep wake up refreshed the next day, and then know with complete confidence that you have repaired your body well overnight, which is, this is what sleep is necessary for, is to not just repair uh, the physical stresses of the body, but also to, uh, to rewire neural pathways in the brain. To This is when learning takes place, uh, for the most part, as we sleep, the things, the, the experiences that we've had, the memories that we've had, the, the visual cues. A lot of this gets wired as we sleep uh, at night and gets reinforced. So it's, it's critically important to get enough sleep. So you mentioned blue light, and that's the term for the, uh, the spectrum that artificial indoor light bulbs, the white light bulbs, emit the blue light spectrum. And that's the thing that interferes with hormone function, especially after dark. Well, one of the things that we want to achieve is we want this wonderful naturally produced hormone called melatonin. That's, that's really the prompt that, that puts us in a uh, sleeping state. And without melatonin, we have a very difficult time falling asleep, uh, which is, you know, you see it in older people who have lost the ability to produce significant amounts of melatonin and have a tough time sleeping and may take supplemental melatonin, for instance, to fall asleep. I don't recommend that because once you start, if, particularly if you're young, you start interfering with, a, with the, the normal endogenous production of a hormone as critical as melatonin. You may foster a lifetime dependency on it. But for the most part, we have this delayed onset melatonin release that happens uh, as a result of staying up too late. And we, want, we don't want to get that. We want to actually uh, have melatonin released normally as a result of it being dark. Melatonin does not get released in blue light or in, in, in harsh light of any kind. It needs a, uh, a diminished light, which starts with the sort of yellow light that, oh, coincidentally was available around the, fire, uh, the fireplace for the 700 or million, 700,000 or a million years that we've had access to fire. So, it, you know, if you have candles or if you have, some people are using these biohacks, uh, putting on yellow sunglasses at night to, to uh, read before they go to bed, to kind of acclimate themselves to and, and, and get away from that blue light and into that yellow light space, which allows for the release of melatonin. So it seems like the big tip or, or the big disconnect is that we blast ourselves with artificial light after dark. How can you tell if you're making some efforts and trying to wind things down? How can you tell if you're getting adequate sleep? Uh, well, you can tell. I think you can tell if you're getting adequate sleep or not. And typically, you can tell if you're not getting adequate sleep. 
because you notice it the next day. You may just, you know, it may take a long time to wake up. You may have to set an alarm. I mean, if you're getting adequate sleep, you sh- you ought to be able to wake up normally and naturally at, at, you know, as the sun is starting to rise in whatever part of the world you live in, provided you're not living in the extreme north or, ex- or extreme south. So it's a it's a very intuitive kind of thing in terms of, of am I getting enough sleep? But I think when people have embraced the concepts of the Primal Blueprint and have gotten their eating strategy in order and have gotten their uh, exercise strategies in order, one of the, the, the next thing to fall into place is the sleep. And it's pretty intuitive when you go, oh, yeah, I know, I know I'm getting enough sleep because I feel good. I have energy. I wake up refreshed. I fall asleep easily uh, at night. I don't need the assistance of any uh, drugs or other sleeping aids. So um, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a fairly intuitive thing. So for those heavy hitters who are breezing right through this one thinking they, they don't need that much sleep, uh, it does profoundly affect your weight loss efforts. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who, um, who are stalled in their weight loss efforts and are thinking, well, I've got the diet dialed in. How come I'm not losing weight? Or I'm doing plenty of exercise. How come I'm not losing weight? And one potential reason might be that uh, the inability to get adequate sleep creates the production of excess cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone uh, that has a, a whole a slew of, of, of negative consequences in the body when it's, when it's produced chronically over time. So it suppresses the immune system. Uh, it prevents the uptake of calcium by bones. Uh, it may be the reason that weight loss is stalling because it interferes with our ability to effectively burn off stored body fat and, in fact, sort of promotes the cannibalization of muscle tissue. So there are a lot of reasons to... Um, to avoid this excessive production of, of cortisol. So law number seven is play. Yeah, and, and you know, this is uh, one I'd like to have more of in my own life because I recognize how important play is. Uh, the human brain requires play as part of a learning process over time. And for some reason, it, it would appear that many of us have relegated play to, to uh end at, at maybe five or six years old or maybe 10 or 11 years old, but certainly not into adulthood. Uh, in fact, play is a, a critical component of, uh, of an anti-stress strategy. You know, it, it's probably how I get most of my activity. Uh, when I talk about moving frequently at a slow pace, much of what I do to, to accomplish rule number three is in the form of play. So it may be that I'm uh, out on a two-hour uh, paddle session with the dolphins. I'm playing with the dolphins. I'm moving. I'm, I'm exercising. Uh, it may be taking my dog for a hike, and I'm throwing the ball with my dog, and I'm playing with my dog. So I'm, I'm sort of multitasking in that I'm moving around a lot. I'm getting that, that physical movement, but I'm also engaging in, in a form of activity that w- with which I have no attachment to the outcome. That really is the true definition of play. It's something that you're willing to do that's enjoyable, that's fun, and to which you have no particular attachment um, to a positive or, or a negative outcome. It's just, it's just there to be done. Well, in the Primal Connection, you referenced that research that showed that play was so important for our ancestors because it allowed them to act out what-if scenarios that prepared them for real-life challenges without that attachment to the outcome, or in their case, without the life-or-death consequences. I mean, that's a, good, that's a, a very important point, and it's uh, kind of interesting to, to noodle that around and figure out what that means. But basically, in, in games play or just in horsing around, you know, young adolescents can, can figure out how to interact in a social group without getting 
the crap beat out of them or without um, being the, the, the bully. And, you know, how to, how to get along in a group given particular uh, scenarios that play themselves out. And that's really one of the more elaborate situations or manifestations of what happens when you engage in play. But again, that's just one, one example of how that may have impacted our evolution was this ability to use play as a practice session for real life later on. Yeah, I think the memorable quote that I took away from that passage was that play helped humans develop a cognitively fluid mind, which was huge for evolution and pre- presiding over all the other competitors and as well as uh, succeeding today. Exactly. So, number eight, get adequate sunlight. You know, it's interesting how we've been um, told by so much of the medical community to avoid sun, That's that uh, sunlight and sun exposure is bad for us, it causes cancer. And uh, I've, I made a statement years ago that I will stand by now, which is I think more people get cancer as a result of avoiding sun than have ever gotten cancer as a result of, say, too much sun. The body, uh, the human body was designed to be exposed to sun for a number of reasons, not the least among which was to take that UVB rays that come from the sun and convert uh, cholesterol underneath the skin into vitamin D. Vitamin D, one of the most important vitamins, I mean, it really ought to be called a hormone, uh, but one of the most important vitamins in the body, particularly with regard to the immune system, one of the reasons that we we don't get cancer as a result of this uh, vitamin D's interaction with the proofreader gene and the, the propensity that we have to scrutinize all of the, the changes that are happening in the DNA and to identify uh, bad links or bad situations and to use the immune system to kick out those. That's the reason why we don't get cancer every one of us all the time because we have an immune system that's always looking for for damaged proteins and, and uh, damaged strands of DNA. And yet, without sunlight, we really have a tough time making this all-important vitamin D. So what I recommend is people spend anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes a day as unprotected as possible with as much of the body uh, in the sunlight as possible. Uh, again, where feasible, if you're in the middle of the winter in, in, in New England, it's not going to be feasible, in which case it's probably prudent to take a vitamin D supplement. But for the most part, the best source of vitamin D is getting adequate sunlight. One other aspect of that, which is, I think, critical, is that our mood uh, does have uh, it is impacted significantly by the amount of sunlight that we get. You see, in the northern countries of Europe, there's a, a an increased incidence of of mood disorders in the wintertime as a result of the lack of sunlight. Uh, so, I think all of these factors bring me back to this uh, this law that for the last two million years, humans have gotten daily amounts of sunlight and to the extent that we can find ways to do that today, we will benefit. So the fair-skinned people that fear the sun and, and uh, don't want to go out, you can cover up your face, you can screen your face, but you want to expose the large skin surface areas of your body to make the vitamin D. Sure, the back, the torso, the legs, um, to the extent that you can do that. And yeah, if you want to avoid the, the wrinkles that you see in the National Geographic magazines on the, uh, on the centenarians that are spread around the world. Uh, certainly cover the face up, but large areas of the body are designed to capture these UVB rays and, and to help convert into vitamin D. I know you have to get out to your paddling session, so we'll get through these last two laws. And uh, number nine, avoid stupid mistakes. It, it almost goes without saying, but you know, one of the reasons that we tend to live longer is we avoid making stupid mistakes. And there's a, a whole uh, internet 
and, and book series called uh, The Darwin Awards, which looks at people who have been removed from the gene pool because of uh, choices they made that had to do with maybe um, trying to get suntans on the top of a microwave dish uh, 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 office building or, uh, you know, uh, uh, throwing gasoline on a fire to get it, to get it going. Some of those are obvious, and we've got a book coming out actually in, a, in, in next year, in 2014, called The Primal Prescription, in which Doug McGuff, uh, an, an emergency room physician, details some of the stupid mistakes that he's seen over his career, and he actually uh, sets out these laws. So, you know, using seatbelts would be an obvious one. Wearing a helmet when you ride a bike or play football would be an obvious one. Actually, not playing football would be an obvious one. You know, he he would go on to say, you know, don't buy a, an ATV or a, or a three-wheeled uh, vehicle or uh, because a quad will turn into a quad. You know, there are a lot of these things that we look at and we go, well, you know, what's the what's what's my what's the harm? Don't dive into a shallow swimming pool. I mean, some of these things seem obvious to you and me, but for a lot of people, it does take st- stepping back a bit and going, okay, what are the what are the consequences if I try this? You know. It, you know, I'm not a big fan of, of base jumping, but I have friends who choose to do base jumping. When they do so, they pack their own chute. Uh, you know, it's really about minimizing risk and, as such, living a long, healthy, happy life. Yeah, well, it, it's a little bit of a disturbing juxtaposition when you think about the primal law of avoiding stupid mistakes and not slipping off the rock and uh, falling. And even today, with all the modern comforts, we still find ways to text and drive and so forth. Great example, texting and driving didn't exist 15 years ago, and now it's the cause of a lot of bike accidents because the drivers, you know, swerve over a little bit to the side of the road. Um, I, w- I would not ride my bike on the roads today because, of, because, because texting and cell phones came on the scene 15 years ago. And, you know, if we look at, at um, evolution over time, if any of these traumatic experiences happened to one of our ancestors, that was it. Ball game was over. Today, we at least have the luxury of if you get whacked pretty bad in an accident, maybe there's somebody at the emergency room that can help you get through this particular episode. But it's far better to just avoid that trauma in the first place. So law number 10 is use your brain. Yeah, and, and you know, we are, humans are on top of the food chain because of our brain. We are the smartest animal that, that ever lived, uh, according to some accounts. I'm not sure that's always the case. Uh, but one of the things that that's uh, important to our maintaining our health is to maintain our cognition and our ability to reason and our ability to communicate. One of the assumptions that I think we make over time is that we don't have to, we don't have to train the brain. We don't have to work out the brain is what it is and it's there. In fact, we do have to train the brain. And so I recommend that a lot of times people maybe engage in, in hobbies, uh, learn to play an instrument. Um, I happen to do crossword puzzles and Sudokus and jumbles on a daily basis just as sort of a it's 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 a form of working out but it's for my brain my intention is to stay as as cognitively adept as i can for as long as i can uh you know alzheimer's runs in my family um i happen to think a lot of it's a result of uh, bad food choices and dietary choices and i think i've got that one pretty much licked but by the same token i want to be as sharp as i can be for as long as i can be and that requires using my brain so there's a distinction from going to work and getting slammed for eight hours with your core daily responsibilities and using the heck out of your brain and going home fried, but we're talking about creative pursuits that you enjoy and can grow from. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's work. No matter what sort of work environment you're in, it's typically a rote situation. You do what you do. It's like it's like going to the gym and lifting the same weights every day. At some point, your body gets used to it and doesn't doesn't have to adapt. What I'm suggesting is that by doing puzzles, by doing uh, you know learning a language, you know working with with young people, you know you can, all manner of opportunities here to use your brain and to put yourself into challenging situations where you're forcing your brain to come up with new solutions to new situations. And, you know, and, and it's fun. I have to say, it's, you know, it, I don't like being in a working situation where it's the same old thing all day long. I, I, in fact, I look forward to doing my puzzles probably more than anything, any other part of my day. Don't tell my wife that. Uh, no, it's, uh, but, but, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it, it, I look to, to it to be fun. I don't want it to be, a, uh, I don't want it to be anything other than fun. All right. That's the 10 laws of the primal blueprint. Thank you so much for providing that great overview of the movement. And another way you can use your brain is to go check out Flights to Cancun. Because on March 1st through 6th, we are going to have this wonderful vacation, PrimalCon vacation at Dreams Taloon Five Star Resort uh, coming out of Cancun Airport. So visit PrimalBlueprint.com and you can see the link to PrimalCon We've also got another PrimalCon up, the fifth annual Oxnard event in September. And thank you so much for listening to the Primal Blueprint podcast here in Malibu with Mark Sisson. Thank you for listening, and we hope you can join us at PrimalCon Tulum, March 1st through 6th, 2014, at the fabulous Dreams Tulum five-star resort on the Mexican Riviera. Please visit PrimalBlueprint.com, and you'll see complete details under the Events tab, and including description of each day on the vacation and all the various room options at the resort.